Hello and welcome to part 2 of Remembering Afghanistan through Robert Fisk. I mentioned earlier that with Fisk, you get a very human element. Of course he talks about geopolitics, history, and the big picture in his book, but that is mostly to set the scene and make you appreciate the gravity of what he was reporting on at the time and what he saw with his own eyes. So this next part will demonstrate this human element when he has an encounter with the soldiers of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. We will also take a closer look at these elusive rebels that he speaks of. Now just like before, I have placed in the notes links to various charities you can contribute to who are helping the people of Afghanistan and the refugees from there seeking to make a better life for themselves. Now one evening, during that January in 1980, Fisk would be in his hotel room at the Intercontinental in Kabul with a big map of Afghanistan spread before him, thinking on where to go next. Up to that point, he had been regularly going east to Jalalabad and the surrounding villages, reporting on the aftermath of skirmishes between the elusive Afghan rebels and the Soviet army. He eventually decides to go towards a city called Mazar-e-Sharif in the north of Afghanistan, right by the Soviet frontier. If you remember, we... Uh, in the last part established how Afghanistan was basically sitting at the underbelly of the Soviet Union, bordering the Central Asian nations, I believe of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, who were part of the Soviet Union at the time. Now he wanted to go there because he wanted to see the Soviet convoys, which were getting ambushed daily, pour into the country from this, uh, from the Soviet frontier, just to get an idea of the scale of the Soviet invasion. So Fisk goes to Kabul's central bus station before dawn and gets on a bus there. He is wearing, among other things, a very long, warm uh, Afghan shawl. And every time they pass a checkpoint, Fisk would kind of turn away and cover his face, trying his best to look inconspicuous, to look uninteresting, and not like a nosy journalist. And by that time, journalists found travelling by any means in the Afghan countryside would be sent back to wherever they were staying, usually Kabul. At first he was lucky, because it was too cold for most Afghan army soldiers to actually come on the bus and look at every person in turn. But just as they approached the last checkpoint, manned by some Soviet soldiers, a local identifies him and turns him into the Soviets. Fisk would own up to being a journalist to the Soviet soldier, who would take him to a small communications hut buried in the snow. Inside, a half-naked paratroop captain, wearing shades, would emerge. This was Captain Victor, from Tashkent in Uzbekistan. He and his men would gather around Fisk, and they would talk while waiting for a returning bus. Fisk did not get to Mazar-e-Sharif that day, but he did something that no other Western journalist achieved so far. He had an open conversation with Soviet Union soldiers, and their humanity really shines through, in his account. Private Tebin from the Estonian city of Tallinn repeatedly described how dangerous the mountains had become now that rebels were shooting daily at Soviet troops. Captain Victor, the paratroop captain we mentioned earlier, wanted to know why I had chosen to be a journalist. But what emerged was that all these soldiers were fascinated by pop music. Lieutenant Nikolai from Tashkent interrupted at one point to ask, is it true that Paul McCartney has been arrested in Tokyo? and he put his extended hands together 
as if he had been handcuffed. I asked him where he had heard the Beatles' music and two other men chorused at once on the Voice of America radio. I was smiling now, not because the Russians were friendly. Each had studied my passport and all were calling me Robert as if I was a comrade in arms rather than a citizen of an enemy power. But because these Soviet soldiers with their overt interest in Western music did not represent the iron warriors of Stalingrad. They seemed like any Western soldiers, naive, cheerful in front of strangers, trusting me because I was, and here in the Afghan snows the fact was accentuated, a fellow European. Now I want to pause here just to clarify something. Although Fisk refers to these soldiers as Russians, and I might be guilty of this myself, it would be more accurate to call them Soviet soldiers or Soviet Union soldiers. Going back to our empire analogy, we can say that Russia controls the Soviet Union in a manner of speaking, and we will find that, just like with empires in the past, there will be soldiers from all over the Union. We have already seen Uzbeks and Estonians, but we will also hear of Tajiks, who are especially useful as they are Muslims like the Afghans and are able to understand their language. I have heard it claimed, but not confirmed, that the Soviet Union would reduce the number of Tajiks in Afghanistan throughout the campaign, just in case they felt too much sympathy or hesitated a little too much before deciding to shoot. Now, when a return bus finally arrives at the checkpoint, Fisk would refuse to get on, just because the Afghan locals would have seen him speak to Soviet soldiers and treat him with suspicion. So instead, the soldiers put him on a Soviet military truck, part of convoy number 58, going to Kabul. And Lieutenant Nikolai would tell him, goodbye and give my love to Linda McCartney. Fisk would see the vast deployment of troops, not from a distance, but from the inside of a Soviet military vehicle, and he couldn't believe his luck. But as they descended into the gorges, he realises he may have bitten off more than he could chew. As we began our descent of the gorge, the Russian driver beside me pulled his kit bag from behind his seat. He opened the straps and offered me an orange. Please, you look up, he said. Look at the top of the hills. With near disbelief, I realised what was happening. While he was wrestling the wheel of his lorry on the ice, I was being asked to watch the mountaintops for gunmen. The orange was my pay for helping him out. Slowly, we began to fall behind the convoy. The soldier now hauled his rifle from the back of the cab and laid it between us on the seat. Now you watch the right of the road, he said. Tell if you see people. I did as I was told, as much as for my safety as his. Now when they get to the bottom of the pass, Fisk and this unnamed Soviet driver are reunited with Convoy 58, and there he meets Major Yuri who he describes as tall and with intelligent, unnaturally pale green eyes. He is a father to a nine-year-old daughter and lives in Kazakhstan. He seems a professional, respected by his men, and quite charismatic. And later on, when five Afghan army soldiers would approach and complain about Soviet soldiers waving rifles in their faces, Fisk would see how Major Yuri would take off his gloves, shake hands with each of them, and speak to them like an equal, leaving them smiling. Unlike the soldiers at the checkpoint, he did not seem naive and had little interest in Western music. Instead, 
he talked to Fisk about politics. What, he asked, did I think of Mrs. Thatcher? I explained that people in Britain held different views about our Prime Minister. I wisely forbore to give my own, but that they were permitted to hold those views freely. Now Fisk is implying here that he knows how people in the Soviet Union are not free to hold their own opinions on their government, that they face the danger of being sentenced to labour camps or worse. But to carry on, I said that President Carter was not the bad man he was depicted as in the Moscow press. Major Yuri listened in silence. So what did he think about President Brezhnev? I was grinning now. I knew what he had to say. So did he. He shook his head with a smile. I believe, he said slowly, that Comrade Brezhnev is a very good man. Major Yuri is well read. He knew his Tolstoy and admired the music of Shostakovich, especially his Leningrad Symphony. But when I asked if he read Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he shook his head and tapped his revolver holster. This, he said, is for Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn was a Russian philosopher, writer, and veteran of the Red Army during the Second World War. He would witness war crimes being committed by his own comrades, and throughout his life, he would get locked up and sentenced to labor camps several times for his critical views of the Soviet Union. By the time of the events in the book, he would be an exile from the Soviet Union, working as an academic in the West, I believe uh, mainly West Germany and the USA. And that last part, about Major Yuri tapping his revolver holster, is a reminder of the authoritarianism in the Soviet Union. Even the professional, charismatic and well-read Major Yuri is part of its brutality. One wonders if he said it just because it was expected, much like his comments about Comrade Brezhnev, but going as far as to point at his revolver makes me think he was quite sincere about his feelings there. Now what would happen next will give us an idea of just how bad things were for the Soviet troops in Afghanistan, especially the convoys. Now when it comes to deploying such a large contingent of troops, it is not enough to get them and their weapons over the border. They need a consistent supply of food, water, medicine, ammunition, parts for their equipment and their vehicles. As boring as it might seem, logistics is just as important, if not more so, for an effective army, especially on such a large scale in modern times. And these convoys, the backbone of this supply line, described as armoured centipedes creeping across the mountains and plains, would be the perfect target for the Afghan rebels. The snow was blurring the windscreen of our truck, almost too fast for the wipers to clear it away, but through the side windows we could see the snowfield stretching away for miles. It was now mid-afternoon and we were grinding along at no more than 25 kilometers an hour, keeping the speed of the slowest truck, a long, vulnerable snake of food, bedding, heavy ammunition, mixed in with tanks and carriers, 147 lorries in all, locked onto the main highway, a narrow vein of ice-cloaked tarmac that set every Soviet soldier up as a target for the terrorists, he uses quotation marks there, of Afghanistan. Yet we were surprised when the first shots cracked out around us. We were just north of Charikar, and the rounds passed between our truck and the lorry in front, filling the air pockets behind them with little explosions 
whizzing off to the frosted orchards to our left. Out, Major Yuri shouted. He wanted his soldiers defending themselves in the snow, not trapped in their cabs. I fell into the muck and slush beside the road. The Russians around me were throwing themselves from their trucks. There was more shooting, and far in front of us, in a fog of snow and sleet, there were screams. A curl of blue smoke rose into the air from our right. The bullets kept whizzing over us, and one pinged into a driver's cab. All around me, the Soviet soldiers were lying in the drifts. Major Yuri shouted something at the men closest to him, and there were a series of sharp reports as their Kalashnikovs kicked into their shoulders. Could they see what they were shooting at? So you can imagine the chaos where Fisk is even questioning whether they can see anything or not. And I've read accounts uh, from soldiers before in modern warfare, uh, and they always talk about how, for the vast majority of the times, when you're firing off your gun, you're firing pot shots, you can't actually very clearly see anyone, because if you can, then it's a very, very deadly situation. So it's, it's just a mess of chaos. Now, after they stop and deploy a rescue flare for the dead and injured, Fisk and Major Yuri, along with the rest of the convoy, would finally carry on their journey back to Kabul. As we will come to realise, this is not Fisk's first experience or last experience of combat. He was, arguably, more experienced in that area than a vast majority of conscripted soldiers around the world. But what happens next would place Fisk in a very difficult moral position and would be quite a scandal in the world of journalism. He would be given a fully loaded Kalashnikov. Some would know it as an AK-47 or recognise it as that iconic assault rifle used by most rebels and guerrillas around the world. And a soldier would tell him to keep watch as they drove. When Fisk would write his dispatch notes for his story later, he would choose transparency and not omit this detail from his narrative. And in this book, he gives his thoughts as to why he agreed to carry that assault rifle. I had no desire to hold this gun, even less to shoot at Afghan guerrillas. But if we were attacked again, if the Afghans had come right up to the truck, as they had done many times to these convoys, they would assume I was Russian. They would not ask all members of the National Union of Journalists to stand aside before gunning down the soldiers. I have never since held a weapon in wartime, and I hope I never shall again. I have always cursed the journalists who wear military costumes and don helmets and play soldiers with a gun at their hip, greying over the line between reporter and combatant, making our lives ever more dangerous as armies and militias come to regard us as an extension of their enemies, a potential combatant, a military target. But I had not volunteered to travel with the Soviet army. I was not, as that repulsive expression would have it in later years, embedded. I was as much their prisoner as their guest. As the weeks went by, Afghans learned to climb aboard the Soviet convoy lorries after dark and knife their occupants. I knew that my taking a rifle, even though I never used it, would produce a reaction from the great and good in journalism, and it seemed better to admit the reality than to delete this from the narrative. If I was writing shotgun for the Soviet army, then that was the truth of it. This notion of embedded journalists who would travel along with armies and report from their perspective at all times first emerged, I think, in the First Gulf War approximately a decade later. It was one of those wars where journalists didn't have to hide their cameras in taxis and smuggle dispatches through local bus drivers, but instead they were invited to witness the might of modern warfare from the coalition side, 
And that in itself has a lot of moral quandaries. Would such journalists be truly journalists, or would they be propaganda mouthpieces, being spoon-fed information by the armed force they are embedded with? But the very act of carrying a weapon in the manner that Fisk did is a whole issue that even has legal implications. Now, in the Geneva Conventions, which outline how armies and armed groups should behave in warfare, the wanton killing of unarmed civilians, the destruction of civilian infrastructure like hospitals, and killing journalists are the obvious ones. But interestingly enough, what is equally a war crime is for armed groups to not wear uniforms or markings that make them identifiable as combatants. Now, this seems bizarre. And I can imagine some people thinking it to mean that they have to stand out at all times and be very visible. But the object and purpose of rules like this was to actually make the principle of distinction, which is basically the standard practice of recognising that your target is a military one, be it a person or a building, easier. To avoid civilian deaths or collateral damage, as we call it these days. Now the logic here is that if an armed guerrilla group made it standard practice to blend in with civilians at all times, then they would put the lives of civilians in danger. So what if it was the other way around? What if a journalist is found to be carrying a gun? The director of Reuters at the time, Gerald Long, would criticise Fisk when this detail emerged and word this logic quite well. He says, Much though everyone will understand the natural instinct for self-preservation, he should have refused to carry a gun. If we are to claim protection for journalists covering conflict, journalists must refuse to carry arms in any circumstances. The risk to all journalists, of any journalist carrying a gun, is, in my view, greater than the doubtful protection a gun can give him. Now, Fisk never had to use his weapon, and he made it clear that he found no pleasure in carrying one. But imagine if a journalist in Afghanistan at the time had used his gun to kill Afghan guerrillas, or imagine if, after a battle, the body of a dead journalist carrying a weapon was discovered among the soldiers. Fisk's account reveals how journalists, as foreigners, were not trusted by some locals to begin with. So in a way, such an event would have put a very large target on the backs of all journalists at the time. Now this brings me on to the other side in this conflict, from the Soviet troops to the elusive Afghan warriors that Fisk refers to as rebels, throughout his account. The use of that word in itself is telling, because it is very neutral. He does not call them terrorists, or if he does he puts it around quotation marks, and he does not call them freedom fighters. But what we are told, as we will shortly find out, is that there is a narrative among other journalists, especially the American journalists, that the rebels are freedom fighters resisting a brutal Soviet occupation. Now it seems fairly simple. If the Soviet Union is authoritarian, dictatorial and oppressive, then surely anyone who fights them is a freedom fighter. A good guy, if you will. But Fisk, who has a very critical mind, disagrees. It is not so simple. And this goes back to the extract that I read from his introduction in part one, about how governments like to turn wars into what he calls a drama of opposites, of good versus evil and that this is rarely, if ever, the case. He talks about how terms such as terrorist and freedom fighter are weaponized on the international stage, how they are opportunistic or subjective terms. This is what he says in the context of Afghanistan. 
It was all too easy to turn a Soviet occupation into a one-dimensional drama of brutal Russian invaders and plucky Afghan guerrillas. A succession of pro-Soviet dictators had ruled Afghanistan with cruelty, with socialist cant and pious economic plans, but also through tribal alliances, the Pathans and the Hazaras, and the Tajiks and the Ulzais, and the Duranis and the Uzbeks, could be manipulated by the government in Kabul. It could bestow power on a leader prepared to control his town on behalf of the communist authorities, but could withhold funds and support from anyone who did not. Prison, torture and execution were not the only way to ensure political compliance. But among the tribes, deep within the deserts and valleys of Afghanistan, the same communist governments had been trying to cajole and then force upon these rural societies a modern educational system in which girls as well as boys would go to school, at which young women did not have to wear the veil, in which science and literature would be taught alongside Islam. Twenty-one years later, an American president would ostentatiously claim that these were among his own objectives in Afghanistan. In other words, the Americans would have similar objectives to these oppressive communists, but would call the same people who had the same motivations, freedom fighters at one point and then terrorists at another. Fisk's comments can be taken as a very subtle way of pointing out hypocrisy or as an alternative way of looking at the well-known phrase one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. But generally speaking, it is an entire area of study in international law. Domestically, within certain countries, there are clear definitions of terrorism as a criminal act. But on the international stage, it seems there is more of a grey area, where nations are not quite as ready to agree or to commit as to is actually a terrorist or not. And the events in Afghanistan from the Soviet invasion to today expose this uh, dilemma. We also learn here that Afghanistan, like many other countries, is diverse. The people there are not all merely Afghans, but there is a different layer to their identity. He mentions various ethnic groups, but the Batans, also known as Pashtuns, are mentioned most frequently as those warriors who fiercely resist outside influence. This mix of peoples is partially a result of Afghanistan's borders being artificially drawn by outside powers, a legacy of imperialism. The Pakistani border, for example, also called the Durand Line, was drawn by Mortimer Durand, a British civil servant who determined the frontier between British India and Afghanistan. But as far as people such as the Patans are concerned, they lived in their own place called Pashtunistan, or Land of the Pashtuns. On a map, it straddles the Afghan-Pakistani border and sweeps gradually along a large chunk of the south of Afghanistan. Alongside this ethnic identity, you also have socio-economic differences, or what some people might think of as class differences. And this is something you will find in most countries, but would be more pronounced in developing areas. You had your intellectual progressive, typically liberal types who normally live in bigger cities, you had your conservatives and traditionalists, which Fisk mentions, uh, you know, living in the more rural societies. And of course, you had a lot of people, uh, generally speaking, living in poverty, consumed with the struggles of daily life, and little access to proper education. There would be an incident where Fisk really begins to understand just how serious this was. 
It would be during one of his many stints in Jalalabad where the owner of a chaykhana, a tea shop, would tell him that a bridge between Jalalabad and Kabul had been blown up by the rebels. Fisk would set off in a rickshaw uh, to see the damage for himself and he would find there a crowd of locals who were also naturally curious. One of these locals would approach him and ask a question with a single terrible word. He would ask, Shuravi? Now Fisk understood this to mean Russian, as if this person was asking him if he was Russian. And as he describes it, he would bellow the word Inglistan, meaning England, at this man and his fellow Afghans. One of these other local men spoke a little English, and after he finishes talking to the others, he would approach Fisk and tell him, they say that London is occupied by the Shuravi, or by the Russians. Fisk would understandably panic, and realising that this man, who spoke little English, was his only hope of a translator, he would proclaim that England is free, 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 three times, and that they would fight the Russians if they came. He had no time to go into geopolitics or discussion. He knew all too well the likelihood of him being attacked as a suspected spy or Russian sympathiser. Thankfully, the man would relay this message to his fellow Afghans and eventually they would break out into smiles and cheers for England's heroism in fighting the evil Russians. Fisk would later realise how, for some of these people, Kabul was an exotic enough place for them, that they were not so aware of the world outside of Afghanistan at large. Ironically, when Fisk would return years later and would be in a similar position again, he would tell another Afghan man that he was from Irlanda, or Ireland, as by then, the British, along with the Americans, were not that popular there either. Now this next part is particularly graphic, but outlines why Fisk is sceptical about the narrative of these Afghan rebels being freedom fighters in the first place. I remember one excursion out of Jalalabad in those early days of the Soviet invasion. I had heard that a schoolhouse had been burned down in a village 25 kilometers from the city and set off in an exhaust-fuming Russian-built taxi to find out if this was true. It was, but there was much worse. Beside the gutted school, there hung from a tree a piece of blackened meat, twisting gently in the breeze. One of the villagers, urging my driver to take me from the village, told us that this was all that was left of the headmaster. They had also hanged and burned his schoolteacher wife, the couple's sin, to comply with government rules that girls and boys should be taught in the same classroom. And what about those Pakistanis and Egyptians and Saudis who were, according to Karmal, supporting the terrorists? Again, he puts quotation marks. Even in Jalalabad, I heard that Arabs had been seen in the countryside outside the city, although, typical of our innocence at the time, I regarded these stories as untrue, how could Egyptians and Saudis have found their way here? And why Saudis? But when I heard my colleagues, especially American journalists, referring to the resistance as freedom fighters, and he puts that in quotation marks, I felt something going astray. Guerrillas, maybe. Even fighters. But freedom fighters? What kind of freedom were they planning to bestow upon Afghanistan? Now sadly, the targeting of schools by these rebels was a very common occurrence, and Fisk would later explain how these places were seen as centres of atheism and communism, and therefore a threat to religious way of life. Within three weeks of the Soviet invasion, 
signs of a very united Islamic political opposition would start to emerge. Overnight, past the hours of curfew from 8pm, unknown persons would shove documents containing demands, accusations and manifestos through the fences of consular compounds. Printed on cheap paper, they would contain drawings of the Quran, the Islamic holy book, and would become known as the night letters. Fisk recalls one of these night letters that claimed to be from the United Muslim Warriors of Afghanistan and bore the badge of the Islamic Afghan Front, just one of four groups fighting in the south of Afghanistan at the time. It will denounce the Afghan regime for committing inhuman crimes and the Soviet troops of treating Afghans like slaves. It would proudly state that they will not give up fighting or guerrilla attacks until their last breath, threatening the overthrow of the Afghan regime. Their religious fervor, inspired in part by the Islamic revolution in Iran, but also by the general proliferation of political Islamism in the modern age, would also draw the faithful from other parts of the world, namely the Arab world. The way Fisk mentioned it above, of the rumors that Arabs had been seen in the countryside, makes them sound almost mythic and threatening like rumours of werewolves or monsters and fantastical stories. But despite Fisk's scepticism at first, he would slowly come to understand the truth of the matter. At one point, when Fisk and his journalist comrades would show up at the site of an ambush where two civilians had been killed and nine others injured, an old man would turn to Fisk and describe these rebels as Mujahideen, holy warriors. Gavin from the BBC would look at Fisk with curiosity. They had not heard that particular word being used in Afghanistan before, but it quickly gave them an idea of what the Soviet army and the Afghan government were up against, of the seriousness of the situation. Fisk would seldom lay his eyes upon these holy warriors, but there was one particular incident he recalls. He would be travelling from Jalalabad in the southeast back to Kabul on the main highway, and instead of joining Ali on his old wooden bus, Fisk would take another that was full of students on a government scholarship, a scholarship that they got in return for their loyalty or their parents' loyalty to the government and the ruling communist Parcham party. But from the beginning there was a bad feeling. They were ordered to close their curtains at all times for fear of attack, and as they travelled through the wilderness, the students would crane their necks through the little cracks of light as they approached bends in the road, desperately trying to see if there was an ambush waiting for them. Any illusion of security would shatter when they see the dead body of a man covered in a blanket being loaded onto a bus. A passenger on another bus would tell them that this was a lorry driver who did not stop for the Mujahideen. Some of these government students, looking on in horror, would remove their party badges. As the drivers of the buses would debate on whether to carry on, Ali's bus would catch up with Fisk. And by this point, he realized that his best bet was to join him. And what happens next shows how close to danger Fisk was. Round a bend, just five kilometers up a highway, in a narrow valley of rocks and small pines, six tall and sunburned Mujahideen stood astride the road. A seventh was perched on a rock, lazily waving his arm up and down to tell us to stop. We had been told that they were poorly armed, that they only dared appear at dusk, that they were frightened of government retaliation. But here were the Mujahideen in the hot midday sun, in their turbans and Afghan shawls, each holding a brand new Kalashnikov, 
controlling the traffic on one of Afghanistan's most important highways. It was an audacious display of self-confidence and a fearful one for the students in the bus behind. There was no anxiety on Ali's bus and the Pakistani passenger, a cloth merchant from Peshawar, was so bored that he began a long and tiresome discussion about Pakistan's domestic politics. Through the back window, however, I could see the students stepping off their bus onto the road. They stood there, heads lowered as if they were criminals, some trying to hide behind the others. Ali was chatting and joking with one of the guerrillas. The other drivers stood beside their buses expressionless. The gunmen were moving through the line of young Afghans. Some were ordered back on the bus. Others, white with fear, were told to form a line by the road. Three of them were tied and blindfolded and taken, stumbling and falling through the pine stands and towards the river that gurgled away to our right. We watched them until they and their captors had disappeared. The Pakistani cloth merchant clucked his tongue and shook his head. Poor chaps, he said. As we drove away, a young gorilla with a rose tied to his rifle waved vigorously at us through the window. At last I had seen them. Here were the holy warriors whom the CIA was now adopting. The terrorists and bandits and counter-revolutionary subversive elements, as Karmal called them. The remnants, as the Soviet general blandly dismissed them but they didn't look like remnants to me. Their Kalashnikovs were the new AKS-74s that the Soviets had just brought into Afghanistan, and they were wearing new ammunition belts. Fisk would reflect on the fate of these three students, who found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, maybe because of their parents and where they worked, or for whatever reason. But the damage that a war like the Soviet-Afghan war does is not only in the buildings it destroys or the lives it takes. It puts such places in a position that is very difficult to recover from because it creates the conditions to ensure that the most brutal, most cunning and most well-resourced faction is the one that triumphs. Even when the Soviets are driven out in 1989, the various rebel factions will turn on each other with what Fisk describes as wolf-like viciousness until a victor is declared, that being the Taliban today. The other thing to note here is mention of the CIA adopting these rebels, meaning giving them support. This would mean that Afghanistan can not only be seen as a civil war or an invasion, but also a proxy war, all rolled into one. The Soviet Union would replace most government ministers and advisors with their own puppets. The CIA is giving weapons to rebels, and Pakistan is the one greenlighting the passage of weapons through its border. And finally, Among the holy warriors are Arabs from all over, Saudis, Egyptians, even Palestinians. Again, I am tempted to draw comparisons with Syria today, but I will refrain for now. The CIA would carry out a program of providing stinger missiles to these rebels. These could be carried and fired by one man, and are capable of downing low-altitude aircraft, especially helicopters, from nearly five kilometers away. So effective would the program be that Fisk would witness, on multiple occasions, these Soviet gunship helicopters hovering so low above the city of Jalalabad that he would be able to see the red star insignia and rocket pods. Now at first, he thought it was a display of power over the locals, but then realized it was an evasive maneuver to avoid being hit and destroyed by these missiles. Fisk would note that the Americans would use this very manoeuvre in Iraq when they invade, about 23 years later. 
Now these helicopter gunships were, if anything, a menace of the skies. Essentially, floating platforms that carried heavy machine guns and rockets, they gave a massive advantage to the Soviets at first. And the CIA's decision to supply a countermeasure for them to the rebels worked extremely efficiently and extremely well in tipping the odds in their favour. Now just to be clear, I'm not a military strategist and have no military experience, but I imagine that once you cancel out the Soviet Union's air superiority, it really just becomes a waiting game of tiring out the Soviet Union and making it more and more expensive to stay there. All the rebels had to do was hide in their mountains, persist with guerrilla attacks, and bide their time. Now Fisk would be on the receiving end of the terror that these helicopter gunships would routinely unleash on people. During his time in Jalalabad, as he returns to the Springar Hotel where he was staying, a distraught receptionist tells him that a village, and forgive my pronunciation, called Surkhrud, was being attacked by these Soviet helicopters. Naturally, Fisk hired a rickshaw and went straight there himself. He told the driver to wait on the main road and walks into this simple town of dirt streets and mud-walled houses. This is what happens next. There was not a human to be seen, just the distant thumping sound of Soviet Mi-25 helicopters, which I only occasionally saw as they flitted up past the ends of the streets. A few dogs yelped near a stream of sewage, the sun was high, and a blanket of heat moved on the breeze down the streets. So where was the attack that had so upset the receptionist? I only noticed the insect shape of a machine low in the white sky seconds before it fired. There was a sound like a hundred golf balls being hit by a club at the same time, and bullets began to skitter up the walls of the houses, little puffs of brown clay jumping into the air as the rounds hit the buildings. One line of bullets came skipping down the street in my direction, and in panic I ran through an open door across a large earthen courtyard and into the first house I could see. I literally hurled myself through the entrance and landed on my side, on an old carpet. Against the darkened wall opposite me sat an Afghan man with a greying beard and the clutch of children, open-mouthed with fear. And behind them, holding a black sheet over her head, a woman. I stared at them and tried to smile. They sat there in silence. Now I think that the people of the village heard the same thudding of helicopters that Fisk did, and they were all too aware of what would happen next because of past experiences. And those clutch of children, open-mouthed with fear, would most likely have heard these helicopters hundreds of times for the next eight to nine years of the war, each time seeking cover and running for their lives. I wonder what sort of effect that had on them. There are children all around the world who can tell from horrific experience, the specific thudding and engine sound of an Mi-25 helicopter or an Apache helicopter or whatever helicopter it would be. There are children who can tell from the screaming of jet engines, the various types of bomber and fighter aircraft wailing overhead, no doubt as they hid in fear. Such thoughts make Fisk's summation of war as the failure of the human spirit look very accurate. I mentioned earlier that among the rebels, the holy warriors, were Arabs. How Fisk heard rumours of them being seen in the countryside like a mysterious and foreboding omen. Indeed, it was foreboding, because one of these holy warriors would be hiding in the mountains and valleys very close to where Fisk was working. He would play an important role in Afghanistan at first and be seen very much as a hero for a long time, 
but his name is now infamous. That man is Osama bin Laden. Fisk would meet him twice, and one of these meetings would take place in Afghanistan after the Soviet withdrawal and its collapse. This is what we will look at in the third and hopefully final part. But for now, and until then, thank you for listening.